Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Well, uh, I'm going to read the sermon text this morning. It's out of Luke 3, the first 10 verses of Luke 3. If you want to turn there, it should also be on the screen. Love to hear the pages turning. Luke 3, start with verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Atria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, of the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. One of the reasons I have the elders read the text before I teach is when there are hard names to pronounce. I like to watch them squirm. Um, no, you did really good. <laughs> you did really good, Andy. I was like, I started to text him this week and say, make sure you work through that because I, I get caught too. Like sometimes you just, you know, maybe forget to think through a pronunciation. Then you get up here and it's like, whoops, you know, sorry. Uh, I want you to imagine that you are asleep. Uh, some of you might uh, be tempted to go to sleep in a minute, but don't go too far with this. But imagine that you're asleep and you're having some of the best sleep that you've ever had. I mean, you are just deep in sleep, dreaming, comfortable. The dreams are good. The bed is comfortable. You are just out asleep. And then suddenly someone bursts into your bedroom. They begin to shake you yell at you, shine a bright light in your face, and scream, get up, it's time, you're going to be late, you're going to miss it, wake up, and then before you have time to wipe the sleep out of your eyes, they throw a bucket of ice cold water on you. It's not a pleasant thought, is it? 
You know, it's not apples to apples, but I can't help but wonder if that's how Zechariah felt. If you remember back in chapter 1 when he is in the temple, he's in the holy place, he's next to the altar of incense, he's, this is the time of his priestly service, and there beside that altar, Gabriel appears, right? This, this was an extraordinary moment for Zechariah just in terms of his priestly service, but as a whole, this was fairly routine, what was going on, and here in this somewhat routine moment, Gabriel appears and says, Zechariah, you and your old barren wife are going to have a son. Right? And this is what Gabriel said to him. If you want to turn there, back in chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. You're going to have a son, Zechariah, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So he's going to be inundated, immersed in the Holy Spirit from the womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, Zechariah, your son is set apart from birth, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to have a ministry that's going to be prophetic. It's going to be in the spirit and power of Elijah. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. And he's going to minister in such a way that he's going to cause people to turn. If I say turn. The word that is in the Bible that we're familiar with is the word repent. It doesn't mean I'm sorry. It doesn't mean please forgive me. It means to turn. Literally. Change your thinking. So notice how many times that's repeated in that what Gabriel said to Zechariah. He's going to cause fathers to turn to their children. He's going to cause the disobedient to turn to the wisdom of the just, right? He's going to cause people to turn away from sin to the Lord, all for what? To make a people ready for the coming of Yahweh. Yahweh is going to show up on the planet. And that's about the reaction I would expect to get this morning, all right, at 9 o'clock service. You had not had enough coffee yet. Yahweh's going to show up. Wake up. Splash of cold water, bright lights. Wake up. Wipe the sleep out of your eyes because Yahweh's coming. What does that mean? Well, if you've been in church for a while, you're reading your Bible. At this point, you're going, well, that just means Jesus is going to come. And certainly, that is how Yahweh is going to show up. Amen? Luke's been running right alongside the narrative about John's birth, the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. So we've seen these two things running alongside each other, these two events, the advent of Christ and John the Baptist being born. So we know this is where it's going, but at this point, Jesus is not on Israel's radar. Not yet. And the last time we left off with John, it was in verse 80 of chapter 1. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance 
to Israel. So he grew. This is where we left off. He grew. He's physically growing. He becomes a man. And at some point, he moves into a period of isolation in the wilderness. Undoubtedly, there's spiritual preparation going on with John. We don't know exactly how that went down. All we know is that he not only grew physically, but he was growing spiritually until the time of his appearance. And then, verse 2 of chapter 3. Well, let me say this. Luke gives us kind of a time stamp, right, of when this happened. When does John come out of the wilderness and begin to fulfill his purpose? It was around the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And it was also at a time when some key figures in this narrative are in place. Did you notice some of them, right? Herod. Herod's going to arrest John before we finish chapter 3, right? We know that the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, were present at Jesus' trial. And you might remember in Luke's volume 2, they were the ones, part of the, one, the group that was questioning Peter and John after they healed the lame man in Acts chapter 4. And then we know Pontius Pilate, don't we? All right, he's in place. He's the one who's ultimately going to condemn Jesus to death. And it was during this time, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, that the word of God came to John. So at some point in the wilderness, John's not, John's not willy-nilly doing anything. He's been set apart from birth, and at some point in the wilderness, God speaks to John and says, it's time, let's go. He got a word from God. This is God's timing God's in control. This is God's purpose being fulfilled. John, you're up. All right? The son of Zechariah in the wilderness, in verse 3, and he went into all the region. Don't miss little details like that. John didn't have a small church at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina with about 300 people. This was This was everywhere. I was telling the folks that you know, serve on praise team and media and host team this morning, we met for prayer. I was telling them, you know, the accounts about John the Baptist in the Gospels are almost like just little bursts, little flashes. It's John, baptism, make ready, Jesus baptized, and John's out. Why is that? It's because John's not the Messiah. As we're going to see, he's the messenger who prepares the way. But don't let the, the brevity of words in the Gospels that are devoted to the life and ministry of John the Baptist cause you to think that this guy was not a big deal. All over the region, everywhere, he's proclaiming what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is that about? I imagine for a lot of us when we hear that, we think about what we do when we baptize believers here at Resurrection Church. We baptize believers in, in obedience to the command that Jesus gave in the Great Commission. What did he say? Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. The word means to immerse or inundate. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's what we call believer's baptism. And here's what we're doing. Just a little parenthesis on baptism, okay? Because I know some of you moms and dads are talking to your kids about it. Some of you may not have been baptized. What is that all about? 
Baptism for us is we are symbolizing, it's a public declaration that we through faith, everybody say through faith, through faith have been united to Christ. That's as simple as I can put it. And we would anchor that in texts like this, Colossians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. In him, talking about Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. That's what we symbolize when we go under the water. We are buried with Christ. The old man dies. Amen? In which you were also raised with him. So coming up out of the water symbolizes that we are being raised to new life with Christ. How? Look at the next two words. Through faith. Trust. Dependence. Absolute confidence. In what? In the powerful working of God. This means nothing if God hasn't done something. Right? What has he done? Powerful working of God who raised him up from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us of all our trespasses. Oh. How? How do you do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. I love, Stephen, when you said, let's, let's cast our mind to Calvary. Yes. That's how the record of debt was canceled. I tell people, baptism, as we, as we practice it, is like a wedding ring. Okay? I wear a silicone ring now because the gold ring Mary gave me, my fingers are too fat for it now. But uh, I have a silicone ring here. This ring does not make me married. It does not in and of itself accomplish covenant. What does it do? It tells everybody that I'm in covenant. With this beautiful lady right here on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. So parents, as you talk to your children, or as you as an adult process what water baptism means, this is it. Through faith, we symbolize, we proclaim, we exalt that God has united us to Christ and the record of our sin and our debt has been canceled. We're raised to new life in him. Amen? That's not what John's doing. <laughs> in parentheses, on Believer's baptism. That's not what John's doing. We do not get believer's baptism from what John was doing. So what is John doing? Jesus has not come on the scene yet. He has not died. He has not rose from the grave. And the people that John is ministering to have no concept of trust, faith, confidence, dependence in Christ's sacrifice to raise us from death to life. They have no concept of that. So what is John doing? We need to ask two questions. What was John's baptism and what did it accomplish? And number two, how were John's Jewish contemporaries hearing, perceiving, and receiving the ministry of John? All right? So let's take those one at a time. Question number one, what was John's baptism and what did it accomplish? Here's what it is. John's baptism 
is think of it more like a ceremonial cleansing, right? That has the forgiveness, it's coupled with repentance, turning, and it has a forgiveness of sins in view. I don't think John's baptism actually accomplished forgiveness of sins in and of itself, but it has a forgiveness of sins in view. A ceremonial washing, ceremonial cleansing, we'll talk more about that in just a second, that has a forgiveness of sins in view. Second question, how was this hitting John's Jewish audience? Well, the Jews are not unfamiliar with ceremonial cleansings. Remember when Jesus was at the wedding at Cana? What did he tell the servants to do? There were six stone jars, each held about 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus said, fill those up with water. And John's gospel tells us they were there for ceremonial purification. So ceremonial washing is not unfamiliar to the Jews. You might remember when God, through Moses, led the children of Israel out of Egyptian captivity and they came to Mount Sinai. They came to Mount Sinai where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. Here's what happened. Exodus 19, verse 10 and 11. It'll be on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash. Everybody say wash. Take a bath. Wash your clothes. Wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Why? For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. I'm going to show up, take a bath. (laughs) And on the third day, God did show up. And when he did, there was thunder, lightning. The mountain was covered in smoke. And the mountain shook, and the people trembled. And God instructed Moses, set up a perimeter, Moses. You set up a perimeter, and don't you let those people get too close to my mountain. If they touch it, they're going to die. This was terrifying. This was frightening. Yahweh's going to show up. We better get ready. We better wash. Now, let's keep in mind, Israel, by this point in the Gospel of Luke, has been through about 400 years of silence. No words from God, no prophets, no visitations from God, but they know there's a prophecy. There's lots of prophecies. And Jews would have known them well. Prophecies that one day Yahweh is going to show up on the planet again in a powerful way. And one of those prophecies comes from Isaiah chapter 40, and Luke quotes it here, verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Don't think Jesus right there. Don't think Jesus, Isaiah did not know who Jesus was. Isaiah's prophesying, Yahweh, the same God who showed up on Mount Sinai and there was thunder, lightning, smoke, earthquakes, don't touch the mountain, we're going to die. That God is going to show up again. 
And there's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness ahead of him. Get ready. Wash. I'm coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. What does that sound like? Sounds like when Yahweh shows up, he's going to turn the world upside down. Valleys are going to be lifted up. Mountains are going to be flattened out. Crooked things are going to be made straight. This is big. This is huge. And Israel knew this. Israel knew about this. They were waiting for this. Yahweh's going to show up. It's been 400 years, but we know he's coming. And you couple that with some of the last words that Israel heard from Yahweh in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, this is God speaking. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Yahweh's coming. He's going to show up suddenly. He'll be in his temple. It'll be like a splash of cold water. He's going to come. And the question is, when he comes, who can stand his coming? It's a rhetorical question. Because the answer is, nobody. Don't you touch that mountain. Don't you get too close. No one can stand his coming. He's like a refiner's fire. No human in their own power, strength, and ability alone can withstand the coming of Yahweh. So you take that, and then you couple it just a few verses later in chapter 4 of Malachi, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah. Ding, ding, ding. You see that? What did Gabriel tell Zechariah? He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome. That word could also be translated terrible. terrible day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Wow. And the spirit and power of Elijah. You know from Mark's gospel, right, that John the Baptist, he wore clothes made out of what? Camel's hair. Okay? And he ate locusts and wild honey, and he had a leather belt around his waist. I know we're not in Mark, but those little details matter, people. There's a story in the Old Testament in 2 Kings about a king named, 
and I've already forgot how to pronounce it, Ahazi, I can't say it, I practiced this like four times, Ahazi, something like that. I said it like 16 times before I came into the sanctuary, and now I'm having one of those brain, you know. Uh, So this king, who was a king in Israel, Ahazi, thank you, Ahazi, this king was a king in Israel, and he got sick, really sick. When he got sick, he sent some messengers out to find the prophets of this god named Beelzebub, because he wanted to find out if he was going to die or if he was going to get well. So he sends these messengers. But the Lord speaks to Elijah and calls Elijah to intercept these messengers and tell them, look, the king is not going to live. He's going to die because both he and Israel have rejected the one true God. So the messengers come back to Ahazi, and, huh? Very good. Thank you. Thank you. My Valentine. Thank you. Um, they come back to the king, and they say, they, they relay this news to the king, and the king says this, 1 Kings chapter seven, or 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 7. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair and with a belt of leather around his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So add all this up. Yahweh's coming. It's been 400 years, but we know Isaiah said, the Lord's coming. And we know kind of what the Lord's arrival is like. Mountains shake, thunder, lightning, smoke. It's scary. We know what that's like, but we know he's coming, and we know there's going to be a messenger ahead of him. A voice of one crying in the... And where was John? In the wilderness. And he's going to come, and he's going to be like, not the same as, he's going to be like Elijah, who wore camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist, and now there's a crazy guy in the wilderness saying, get ready, God's coming, get ready, be baptized, be cleansed, repent, he's coming, and he's got camel's hair, leather belt. This must be it. Helps you understand, right, why this was not a small little ministry. It was all over the region. Even the Pharisees and scribes were coming out to see John. This was a big, huge deal. As intriguing as John's ministry would have been, it was also hugely controversial. Because there was one more ceremonial cleansing in the Old Testament that the Jews would have been familiar with, and it was the rite of proselytes. If you were a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism, you had to swear allegiance to the teachings of Judaism, you had to be circumcised, and you had to take a bath because Gentiles were considered unclean. Okay, So this baptism of John, it not only was something that made sense to his Jewish audience because of ceremonial cleansings, Exodus 19 and Mount Sinai, but they also might have had in their mind, and this would have been offensive to them, that this coming of Yahweh is not just about the Jews. It's also about the Gentiles, that the way of salvation might be opening up to the Gentiles, and I think this would have been hugely controversial. Do you remember when Jesus was presented at the temple 
And we met this old faithful Jew named Simeon. What did he prophesy? Chapter 2, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Matthew and Mark both quote Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 in their accounts of John the Baptist. Luke's the only one that includes verses 4 and 5. And I think Luke does this to emphasize that Jewishness is not the issue here. Jewishness is not what you can bank on, Israel, to be saved when Yahweh shows up. And by implication, if Jewishness doesn't necessarily save, then Gentile-ishness doesn't necessarily condemn. Do you see this? This is massive what God is doing through John. The way of salvation is being made for all flesh. God's coming. Repent. Be cleansed. Right? And I think we, ha- we haven't even heard John speak yet. But now Luke lets him speak. And look what he says. I think it confirms this was not just about the Jews. Verse 7, in terms of their nationality. Verse 7 And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. (laughs) Translation, you slimy snakes. Sound like a good church growth strategy to you? (laughs) And they kept coming. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I think that's a little bit of sarcasm. Oh, you suddenly are concerned that when Yahweh shows up, mountains shake, people die, thunder, lightning, smoke. Who woke you up? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, look at this, we have Abraham as our father. Nope, John's saying, that's not going to cut it. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham Even now, oh, this is heavy. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's heavy. But you know, when Yahweh shows up, it's heavy. John was right. And my question, when I, when I got to this point in the text, my question was, did it work? Was it effective? And you might think, well, duh, right? Of course it worked. I mean, John, filled with the Spirit from birth, blah, blah, blah. But this is, these are the kind of questions I ask when I'm reading my Bible. Is like, did it work? Fast forward just a few chapters to chapter 7. I thought this was fascinating. Chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus is talking now. And he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So it did work for some. Those who repented, those who turned, those who paused in their normal everyday routines, daily life, and listened for the announcement, Yahweh's about to show up on the planet. Get ready. Mountains are going to be laid low. Valleys are going to be exalted. Crooked things are going to be made straight. God's coming to save, refine, and cleanse. Get ready. Some heard it. What do we do with this? I started to think about repentance. And Stephen, come on, bud, let's get ready to sing. Um, I started to think about repentance and what I realized is that repentance always precedes true worship. It has to. You can get caught up in a song. You can get caught up in the musicality of it, the movement of it, right? It's like for some of you older couples that, you know, when, when Journey comes on, I'm forever yours on Valentine's Day, right? That moves you. The same thing can happen, naturally speaking, when we sing, who oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forevermore. Or better yet, when the words holy, holy are you Lord God almighty. We could take those words and we could put them in a really good song, a musical structure that has movement and sound and chords, and it might move you. But you're never going to experience what I think Jesus talked about with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, what it means to worship in spirit and in truth if you don't have that sense of repentance, turning. God is holy. I'm not. I heard a pastor talk about this recently. We have very limited sight. We see what is seen and with very limited ability, correct? You can only see so far. I've stood on mountains on a clear day and looked out and wondered, how, I wonder how far I can see. And then I read something this week about just how many, what is it, billions or trillions of light years the universe expands? It's mind-boggling. We can only see what is seen with very limited ability. But there are beings in the created order that can see both the seen and the unseen 
Think of angels. Think of cherubims. Think of the seraphim. They're able to see what you and I see. They're able to see what we might call the known world, what's tangible and real to us. But they're also able to see the unseen world. They're able to see God in heaven. They're able to see the throne. They're able to see what we can't see. And as they behold both the seen and unseen world in all of the created order, all of that, can you imagine being able to see both? To see everything? They see all of that, and here's what they cry. Holy. And what does the word holy mean? There's lots of definitions. This pastor talked about the fact that, yes, it does mean set apart. It does mean other. God, the otherness of God. But here's what this man said, and I just absolutely love it. It made me want to fall on my face. He said, when the cherubim and the seraphim and the angels behold the seen and unseen world, they look at God and they say, you are what nothing else is. You are what nothing else is. And when I think about that, my first response is, I feel so small. And there are people, humans, that throughout biblical history, God gave them a little taste. Think of Isaiah. What did he say? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unclean. Think of Ezekiel. Think of John the Revelator who fell down on his face like he was dead. So there is this, I don't know, this journey in worship where we, if we pause and we depend on the Spirit to give us a sense that God is what nothing else is. He's holy. He's perfectly righteous. And to come into his presence is a terrible thing. It's a frightful thing. We let our words be few. I love to think of God as our Father. I love to think of Jesus as a friend that sticks closer and a brother, but don't ruffle his hair. Don't get too casual with him because he's holy. So when we sing, holy, are you Lord God Almighty? If the song stops there, we're dead. Don't touch the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. You're going to die. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because we sing, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. And in Christ is my righteousness. In Christ is my hope. In Christ, I'm welcomed in to, this, to the presence of a holy God as his child. And so I can sing. I can join heaven. I can join the angels and the seraphim and the cherubim, and I can sing, Holy are you, Lord God Almighty. And as I feel myself want to fall through the floor, I can also join in the cry, Worthy is the Lamb. Yahweh has shown up. 
And he's continuing to break into this world through his church, through his people, by the Holy Spirit, through his word. And one day, as we've sung about this morning, he's going to return. He's going to return in power and in glory. And we will be changed. We will be like him. We will meet him. Now we see through a glass dimly, then face to face. But John's announcement, John's ministry, the effectiveness of it, leads me to just want to cry, holy. Are you Lord God? You show up and you turn the world upside down. And some of you might need your world turned upside down this morning. Some of you might need things, you might need valleys to be lifted. You might need mountains to be lowered. You might need crooked things made straight. But here's what I can tell you this morning. Jesus, the lamb, is worthy. And if your trust, if your hope, your confidence is in him, you can lift your hands and sing holy and let God do his powerful work in you this morning. Would you stand with me? Jesus, you are our righteousness. In you, we are made holy because you are holy. It's a frightful thing to hear the news. God is coming. But instead of being afraid, we lift our hands in worship. We fall to our knees in worship. We run to you, not away from you. Because in you, our sins are forgiven. In you, we are justified. In you, we sing holy. Worthy is the Lamb. Ah. Amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.